The year is 1994, and you're in a grocery store in Cedar Falls, Iowa, population 40,000. You grab your groceries and head to check out, put them on the line, and you look down, and there's somebody on the end bagging your groceries. He smiles and says, hey, paper or plastic? You respond with plastic and proceed on your way. You grab your groceries, head out of the grocery store, not realizing that chance encounter, not knowing the person who just bagged your groceries just got cut by the Green Bay Packers. You see, this grocery bagger in Cedar Falls, Iowa, had played for Northern Iowa, tried out for the Green Bay Packers, got cut, but his story wouldn't end as a grocery bagger. He'd go on to play arena football, and then in Amsterdam for NFL Europe, until he finally got a shot in 1999. Trent Green uh, got injured. He was a starting quarterback for the St. Louis Rams. He tore his ACL in a preseason game. And that grocery bagger would be named starter. He'd go on to throw for 4,353 yards and 41 touchdowns, leading an offense that would be nicknamed the greatest show on turf. He was named NFL MVP and would lead his team to a Super Bowl victory in Super Bowl 34. He when two, he'd go on to play in two more Super Bowls, win another MVP, set multiple records, records, and eventually find himself in the NFL Hall of Fame. That grocery bagger who was making $5.50 an hour would leave a mark on a league that didn't draft him, didn't believe in him, but would eventually have to recognize him. That man I'm talking about this morning is Kurt Warner. And let's be honest, this morning, no one who saw this guy bagging groceries ever thought that he was going to be a guy that would end up in the NFL Hall of Fame. They never knew that the man asking paper or plastic would someday become an NFL legend. They never knew a man from Cedar Falls, Iowa, would go on to win the city of St. Louis its first ever Super Bowl. But isn't it true that these are the stories that we root for? The underdog stories, the stories where the odds seem so insurmountable, and yet the underdog pushes through. It's the underdogs we root for. It's the underdogs we identify with. Good morning. My name is Josh Power, and I, I have the privilege of being the student pastor here at Mountaintop. And this morning, we're continuing our series, uh, Do You Hear What I Hear? And this morning, the song that we're going to tap into is O Little Town of Bethlehem. And to a very real degree, the idea or the notion of underdog is in the title of the song itself, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Not, not O Glorious Town, not O Mighty Town, but O Little Town. The song was written by Phillips Brooks in 1868. Brooks was an American Episcopal preacher who pastored at Boston's Trinity Church and would later become the Bishop of Massachusetts. He traveled to Bethlehem in 1865 where he rode horseback from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. He attended a Christmas service uh, in the Church of the Nativity on Christmas Eve, and he would recall those moments when he wrote the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The song is one of the most popular Christmas songs ever created and has been remade by the likes of Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Mariah Carey, Elvis Presley, and other, among other famous artists. And the song focuses in on the city of Bethlehem. It draws reference from Micah 5.2, where it says, And you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you being least among the thousands of Judah, out of you he, Jesus, shall come forth to me. That is to become the ruler of Israel. 
Least is also replaced in other translations with little or small. You see, Bethlehem, while it held significance to the line of David, really didn't have much going for it. It was simply a small town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, roughly five miles away. The estimated population at the time of Jesus' birth was roughly 1,000. It was a small town with little to hope for that our Savior was born. And had it not been for the prophecies before, no one would have picked Bethlehem to be the town where the Messiah would enter in. This morning, I'd like to make the argument that the Christmas story has all the makings of a true underdog story, starting with the little town of Bethlehem. The fact that a little town, not a big city, a little town would be chosen for the setting of our Messiah's birth. A little town would be the launching pad for the greatest movement and ministry in human history. But this wouldn't be the only thing that, that would be stacked up against Jesus in terms of making this story an underdog story. First and foremost, you've got to understand that the world that Jesus was entering into, but also know how Jesus entered in, right? He didn't come in as a conquering hero. He came in as an innocent little baby. Think of this for a moment. The creator of the universe sent the savior of the world in the form of an innocent, helpless baby. He'd come into a world filled with darkness. I mean, think of this for a moment. Israel hadn't heard from God in nearly 400 years. 400 years without a prophet. 400 years of silence. 400 years of division. And 400 years of what seemed like distance from God. Generations came and went without a prophet. At this time, divisions and differing beliefs of what scripture said pulled, pulled the people of God apart. During these years, Israel would be under control by the Persians, the Greeks, and eventually the Romans. And we know that Ro the Romans were in control of Israel at this time because in Luke 2.1, it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So we know that Rome's in control, right? Because they are the ones who are ordering the census. And we also know that Israel falls under this because they're a part of the Roman world. So we can clearly see that Mary and Joseph, who would be the parents of Jesus, knew the difficulties of what it felt like to live under Roman judicial, judicial and military rule. They were taxed by both the temple and by Rome and had firsthand experience of probably what the painful gap of inequality between the rich and the poor. We can see that Jesus or Joseph and Mary were by no means rich as Joseph was a mere carpenter. And because in Luke 2, 7, it says, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You see, had Joseph had the money, had Joseph been wealthy, the, the innkeeper probably would have found a way to get him a room, right? If you, Money talks. But instead, our Savior was born in a stable and placed into a manger, also known as a feeding trough. But beyond the oppression and financial struggle, while a virgin birth to us is a miracle, in those days, it, it would have been frowned upon, and, and in large part because it just wouldn't be understood. And if we're honest this morning, if somebody had told us that they were pregnant out of a divine conception, we'd probably look at them and think, what in the world is wrong with this person? And that was probably what went through their minds, Right? And it's why Joseph and Matthew 1 had intentions of divorcing Mary quietly because he didn't want to disgrace her. 
Thankfully, an angel of the Lord came to him and spoke to him in a dream. But the odds don't end there. Joseph and Mary would have to travel 90 miles north to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this journey, probably by what many believe would have taken about five days, was a perilous journey. And bear in mind, Mary would have been in the later stages of her pregnancy. Finally, perhaps the greatest obstacle that stood in the gap or stood between Jesus' miraculous birth and the underdog story that we're looking at is the plot by King Herod. In Matthew 2, Herod devises a plan to find out exactly where Jesus is by sending magi to find him. But this plan was thwarted as the magi were warned, and Mary and Joseph would actually be warned as well of Herod's plot and plan and would be told to flee to Egypt. So these are the realities that Jesus' birth faced, right? These are the realities that Joseph and Mary faced. They, they faced Bethlehem, the unlikely setting, the Roman oppression and poverty, the virgin birth, the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem and the plot to kill Jesus. All of this stood between Mary and Joseph and ultimately Jesus. And through all of this, the Christmas story withstood it all. Yes, Jesus was fully God and fully man, so the argument could be made, well, wait a second, this couldn't be an underdog story because God's in this place, right? But I would argue with all the odds stacked against him and what he faced later in life, Jesus is the ultimate underdog. And it's because of this that I believe we're captivated by underdogs because the truth of the matter is is that we're all, we've all accepted an un- the, the greatest underdog ever. Our Savior from divine conception was an underdog. And it's in the little places, the little things, the least likely, that God's ultimate power and divine nature can be revealed. But the Son of God wasn't the first underdog, right? God has a habit of liking to pick out the underdogs in the world. David versus Goliath. Joseph and, and, and Egypt. Moses and Pharaoh. A young boy with five loaves of bread and two fish and 5,000 hungry people. You see, the underdog doesn't cower to his or her circumstances, but recognizes that those circumstances are an opportunity. The underdog recognizes that the mission is greater than their their obstacles. And Joseph and Mary faced obstacle after obstacle, but the mission laid before them by God was greater than the obstacles in front of them. His... God's mission for Jesus inevitably was going to be greater than the obstacles and challenges. But his mission was greater. And in fact, we can find in Phillips Brooks' song, there's a reference to this point that we're talking about this morning. It says, no ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Still. There's some synonyms for the word still, right? Nevertheless, even so. And what you'll find in this word is the reality that that Jesus came into a world of darkness, of sin. He came into a world where he'd be rejected. He'd come into a world where he'd face crucifixion. He'd come into a world where people would betray him. And even still, he still came. Even still, he still came. Here's the reality, God loves underdogs. Because it's in the underdog, it's in the places of no explanations that the only explanation can be God. 
So many of you guys probably have no idea how I ended up here at Mountaintop. In fact, I'm sure at some point or another, you saw me pop up in student ministry and were thinking, what the heck is this guy doing? Or maybe you were online and you're like, this guy is standing next to Chris. I've never seen him before. I haven't been back since the pandemic. Who is this guy? And so our journey here has only one explanation, only God. You see, uh, I had spent five years as a student pastor here in Birmingham when my wife and I felt like God was calling us to step away um, and step out of faith into what, he, what he's calling us to next. And so we stepped down and we actually drove up to Ohio to visit some friends of ours. It was in December. And uh, bear in mind, my wife is born and bred Alabama, okay? So we got out of the car. It was December. It was 17 degrees. And I remember getting out, and she looked straight at me as soon as she got out, and she said, please don't move me here. <laughs> and I, and I, I remember uh, we had a great time with our friends, and by the time our journey or our time there was coming to a close, we got into the car to start driving back, and we looked at each other, and we said, we're supposed to come to Ohio. And so we packed our bags. We, we got everything together. We put an offer in on the house, and... We loaded up a truck and packed everything that we had. And I'd love to tell you as a pastor that I had faith the entire time. But the truth of the matter is, is that I got into a yelling match with God as I was driving up to Ohio. What am I doing? I don't have a job. I don't have a plan. I don't know what's going to happen next. I've uprooted my wife from everything she's ever known. And now we're going to a state where we really only have one person that we know well. But sure enough, God showed up. Uh, I got offered the same weekend that we moved into our house uh, a job at a church as a kid's pastor. And uh, can I just be completely honest and frank with you this morning? Kids ministry is hard. <laughs> like, if you see Melissa, if you get a chance to see her, like, just give her a high five. Like, show her some appreciation because I had no idea what world I was walking into. And I got hired on, and I actually told the, the pastor at the time, I was like, listen, I'm not a kid's pastor. And he said, I don't need somebody to be a kid's pastor. I need somebody to be a leader and to be a pastor. And I said, all right, well, I can do that. And so for two years, it was incredibly hard and incredibly draining because it was really outside of my gifting and my call. But at the same time, those two years were incredibly beneficial to me and my leadership as a pastor and development. And so I'm so thankful for that time. But um, the time was coming, and uh, we were coming up on a two, year that I had, two years that I had committed to the church, right? And so we, uh, we started talking through plans of what this would look like in terms of a transition into a different role. We were talking about students. We were talking about small groups. So there were, there were things moving, right? And then the pandemic hit. And then we sold our house. We sold our house because we were thinking, okay, we're going to move closer to the church. We were living at the time about 30 minutes away. It was going to be great. The housing market was hot. And my wife was sitting out in the car with our realtor waiting to go look at houses and with full intentions of putting an offer in. And I got pulled into a meeting that would change everything. You see, I sat down and uh, the pastor looked at me and said, hey, listen, I, I just have to be fully transparent with you. Uh, COVID's hit us hard. And the pandemic has really hit us hard in terms of uh, both attendance-wise but financially. And the options that we thought we would have laid out before are no longer options. At the same time, if I'm just being transparent with you, it doesn't make sense for you to stay as our kids pastor because, to your point, two months ago, you told us that you weren't passionate about kids. So it wouldn't be fair to our church or to you to keep you in that role. And I'm not going to lie. Like, I sat there just 
thinking, what am I going to do? Like, what does this even look like? And they were an incredibly gracious church. They uh, gave me a couple options to stay in or to, um, to serve in a different role for a bit with a little less pay or to take a severance package. And so I walked out to the car and looked at Megan and I said, hey, we're not putting an offer on a house today. And we had 30 days to figure all this out because we were under contract already. And so once again, we prayed, we sought counsel. And we just had a feeling that God was calling us back to Birmingham. I can't explain it. I don't know how. In fact, if you ask my wife, I told her when we moved to Ohio the first time that we would never move back to Birmingham. And so we looked at each other and said, all right, we're going back south. We're going back to Birmingham. And so we grabbed all of our stuff. And this time we packed twins that were one-year-olds. And so that added, that made the mess a lot messier, right? It was crazy. We packed all of our stuff, we drove down, we bought a house, but here's the reality. In the middle of a pandemic, most churches were struggling financially, and most churches weren't hiring. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. I started coaching volleyball again. I picked up a couple other jobs. I, uh, I started this job cleaning wound vacs. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, what in the world is a wound vac, right? It's disgusting, okay? So... They, a wound vac is this machine where if the wound is too big for them to close up, they put this machine on it, and it sucks out the fluid and all the nastiness. And so my job was to put on PPE, and these vacs would come back to our service center, and I would have to clean them. Yeah, I'm not joking. It was awful. Like, it was terrible. The smell was horrendous. I did this for six months. And I just remember thinking the entire process, God, I don't know what this looks like, but I know I'm not called to this. Like, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. And it was actually a very trying and difficult season, but as we continued to pray, my wife and I would come together every single night, and we would pray relentlessly, God, make a way, make a way. We know you called us down here for some reason, we don't know why. And so I started networking with pastors and just reaching out. I started meeting with pastors saying, hey, listen, I know you don't have the money to hire somebody right now, but maybe at some point, if you do, I'd love to be considered. And Pastor Carter was one of those pastors, and we actually met down at the Tzatziki's right down at the end. And I remember that conversation. It was a great conversation, but I remember at the end of it, I was thinking, uh, oh, no, I don't think this is going anywhere either right? Like Pastor Carter was super gracious and was like, thanks so much for sitting down. But at this time, we just don't, we don't have that role open or that kind of role open. And so to be honest, at that point, I was like, I don't know what, what this looks like moving forward. Um, but two weeks later, I got a phone call from the student pastor here at Mountaintop. And I was honestly thinking like, what does this guy want? Right? Like, he's a student pastor. Like, he, he's not going to be the one making the calls. And so he asked me to come and, and hang out. And Chris said, hey, let's go to Baumhauer's. And I said, all right, well, you got me at Baumhauer's. I'll be there. Right? And so we sat down. And over the next couple months, what, what Chris didn't realize was he was answering prayers. He'd invest into me intentionally. He'd give me opportunities to reignite my passion and love for student ministry. And uh, doors started to open. In January, uh, we got, I got called in and, said, and asked if I wanted to come on part-time. And uh, at the same time that I got that offer, I also got an offer to come on full-time uh, at the Woundvac Center. I said no. I said no. No, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you, though. Very generous. 
And, and so by May, uh, Chris had already started talking to me about his transition and what that would look like. And uh, I started interviewing for the full-time student pastor job and started praying through that process. And I'll never forget the moment that I got the phone call. Chris, I was playing volleyball out in Pelham, and Chris was like, hey, uh, come over to my house. And I said, why? He said, I got something to give you. And I was like, I'm going to see you tomorrow, brother. Like, I'll be at church tomorrow. Just come over. So I pulled up, and he had Pastor Carter on, on FaceTime, and he looked at me and on FaceTime and said, how would you feel about becoming our next student pastor? And I believe my first response was shut up, if I recall correctly. <laughs> because what Pastor Carter and what Chris didn't understand was the obstacles that my wife and I had, had to overcome over the last year. The five different jobs that I worked, the, the relentless prayer that we had every single night, the arguments that I got into God after cleaning wound vacs for eight hours. I pull up onto this campus every day for work, and my response is only God. It's the only thing that goes through my mind. You see, underdog stories are defined by a willingness to surrender to God and say, hey, listen, I don't know what this looks like, but I'm going to trust you through the process. Our circumstances, our obstacles, our challenges are often impossible under our own strength, but when we surrender these to God, these are opportunities for him to manifest himself in our world. I wonder this morning if there's anyone in the room who has listened to the idea that you're not good enough. You're not talented enough. You don't have the qualifications. You can't do it. You're too little and your circumstances in front of you are just too big. Well, those, that setting, that situation is a great setup for an underdog story for God to step in. Perhaps this morning you buy into the idea that you may be little, but your, your God is so much bigger than what stands in front of you. That if he can take a little town of Bethlehem and make it known across the globe and throughout generations, then maybe he can take little old you and transcend the challenges in front of you. You see, I believe there are some underdogs that are sitting in this room tonight, this morning that God is saying, you may be a grocer stocking shelves, but if you would trust me and trust where I want to take you, I would take you to, from stocking shelves to stocking the kingdom of heaven. But for this to happen, for this to transpire in our lives, we must first recognize and accept the most critical piece shown in the song this morning. It says, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. The gift. You see, in order for God to step into your underdog story, you have to be first willing to accept the gift that was given. The gift of salvation, the gift of the blessings that come from heaven, the gift of Jesus. This season of, giving, of gift giving didn't come from nothing. It actually came from the greatest gift ever given. And here's the reality. The greatest gift ever given was given to the least deserving. We, we don't deserve the gift of salvation. We don't deserve the blessings and the hope that we have in Jesus. But God, out of the goodness of his heart, sent his son, the light of the world, into a dark and lowly town of Bethlehem. And out of this miracle, Jesus would launch a ministry that would change the world forever. At the age of 12, I accepted that light that entered into my Bethlehem. 
I grew up in the church, and through my parents, my acceptance of that gift took place. And in, in that moment, I recognized that even though I was fallen and broken, even still, Jesus entered in. And it's because of that gift that regardless of what I faced in my future, I walked through it with the hope and light of Jesus. The beauty of the hope in Jesus is the fact that it's not just the hope of eternity, but it's also the hope of the present and the blessings that God has talked about in his promises. John 16, says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, no matter what you face, no matter what obstacle stands in front of you, the good news of the gospel is that as Christians, we can cling to that hope. But what about the people in your life that don't have that hope? That when they face those obstacles that seem so insurmountable, when they believe they're the underdog, but they don't believe they can overcome what's in front of them, what do they cling to? We have hope because he says that he is with us. We have hope because he has conquered death. We have hope because of his promises. Going back to our song, it says, Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in the night. The greatest gift stands in the gap of our hopes and fears. And we can find joy, peace, comfort, and acceptance because of that, because of that reality. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't a gift given to you that you would hold on to and store away. He was always intended to be shared. Jesus didn't overcome all the odds for the few. He wasn't an everlasting light intended to be shut away. He was a gift given intended to be shared. And we can see that this was the mission and the vision of, of God through the Great Commission and also through the book of Acts where the good news of the gospel was shared and tens of thousands received that great gift. We can see that in the fact that there are 2.4 billion Christians on this planet. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, that's a lot of Christians. We're doing good. The reality is, is that there's 7.7 .7 billion people on this planet who when they face those obstacles, they don't know how to overcome them. And they don't have anything to cling to. So maybe you know somebody. Maybe they've gone through a rough season through the pandemic. Maybe they lost their job. They lost someone. They, they lost their hope in Jesus. And in a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate Christmas Eve. And like many churches, we'll have a candlelight service. And I always love these services because you'll watch as people take those candles and they light the persons next to them. And it's a very real visual. So here's the reality. If you're a Christian in this, sitting here this morning, at some point or another, somebody gave you a gift. They wrapped it up through conversation. They put a nice bow on it. And at some point or another in your life, you accepted this gift, whether it be through discipleship, a personal relationship, a sermon, or small group, you accepted the gift of Jesus. And if we're being completely honest with ourselves this morning, some of us have taken this gift and we've put the, the lid back on. You see, the greatest gift ever given was the everlasting light, the light of Jesus. And some of us have taken this gift, we've 
put the lid back on and we've stored it away. We, we pull it out when Christmas and Easter come around. We, we pull it out when things get tough for us and we open it back up just to remind us of that hope and that incredible gift that was given to us. But the reality is, is that a light was never intended to be covered. It actually defeats the purpose entirely, right? Because light makes darkness flee. Light covered up has no purpose. And Jesus' purpose was always to be a light shared with others, was always supposed to be a light that was put out for others to see. And so this Christmas season, I just want to ask you, would you be willing to take the gift that was given to you and open another box up and light another candle and take it to somebody else who may be in desperate need of hope, who may be in desperate need because this season's gonna be incredibly difficult. This season, maybe they don't have a lot to hope for. Maybe this season they lost somebody. Maybe this season they're experiencing a job loss. Maybe this season it's just different. And so this season, will you take this and will you say, hey, listen, I don't know what you're going through, but can I share something with you? This gift changed my life. This gift changed my eternity. And I want to tell you about a gospel message that could change your life forever. Oftentimes as pastors, we work on messages. But the reality is, is that those messages just aren't for you. Most of the time when we have those messages, we're preaching to ourselves. And there are people in my life as I was writing this, that I came to realize were people that I was called to write, people that I was called to take this light, this candle, and present it to them and to say, hey, listen, I don't know what you're going through, but can I just tell you that I love you? And there's a right way and a wrong way to give a gift, right? If I just shoved something in your face and said, Merry Christmas, you'd probably look at me and say, something's wrong with you. But if I wrapped it up through conversation, if I put a bow on it through discipleship, if I, if I put it in a nice box and handed it to you through a personal investment, man, that gift is a lot easier accepted, right? And so I've written some letters this week to some family members and to some friends. And one of those people, <laughs> if I'm just being honest, I have a good feeling that that, that letter's gonna go in one ear and out the other. But in that letter, I just wanted to know, hey, listen, I love you. I care for you. I don't know what you're going through, but I just want to share a message that changed my life a long time ago. And while she may ignore it and it may be stowed away, isn't that the type of underdog story where we can say only God? Hey, listen, my expectation is she won't accept it, but only God can make it happen. So our team's going to lead us in our song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I would like to ask you, will you pray that God would reveal to you whose Bethlehem he's calling you to bring the greatest gift to? Will you pray that God will give you the courage to share? Will you pray that God would prepare the hearts of those who so desperately need to know him? Will you pray for the people who will walk through our doors on Christmas Eve? Finally, will you pray that Mountaintop would be the Bethlehem of Birmingham that we would shine the light of Christ in our city? Would you pray that God would reveal that person to you that you're called to share? Because this season 
is not a season about just give, receiving gifts, but about giving the greatest gift. And sometimes I think we miss that. We give out some pretty awesome gifts, but the reality is the greatest gift that you could ever give is the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. I'm with you. I'm writing some letters this week and next week, and I'm sending them out, and I'm hoping and praying that God will meet them where they're at. Will you join me in that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to come into your house today and, and to hear about the greatest gift ever given, given to the least deserving. But Father, I pray that the least deserving who have received that gift would not lose sight, would not lose sight of, of the reality that this gift was not intended for us to store away, to put away, to, to hold on to and bring out in only certain moments for ourselves, but this gift was always intended to be shared with those around us. The light of the world did not come to light up just a small little city in Bethlehem, but came to light the world. Father, give us the courage and the boldness to, to reach out to those. And this morning, would you reveal to us who we're called to invite, who we're called to share the gospel with? Give us the courage to do so. We pray this in your name. Amen.